I've known him for a lot of years. Uh, he's a capable preacher, good congregation, and he and his wife have been very hospitable to me many times when I've been there. And he is going to speak on Emeraldianism. William, go. Wasn't that good? Oh, that was, that was good. Getting gooder and gooder, isn't it? I want to invite your attention to two passages of scripture. I'm not really sure if either is appropriate. I'm thinking now of what Brother Stasbo said last night when he mentioned the word saith. I came upon two people. I came up on two brethren last evening after that and one was, this is Deuteronomy chapter 29. One of them used the word neither. The other fellow said that's neither. <laughs> and John Riesinger walked up and they said, John, you settled the dispute. Is it neither or neither? John said neither. So as long as we're able to understand each other, I, I think we'll be able to, to get along today. Deuteronomy chapter 29, one of my favorite verses because I hide behind it quite a bit. <laughs> Verse 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. Meetings such as this certainly demonstrate to us that we have all we can handle with what has been revealed. The other passage is in the Gospel of John chapter 17. My subject today as Amaraldism and a study of the atonement. John chapter 17 in our Lord's high priestly prayer, he said in verse nine, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Out on the little uh, table in the front, if I may take just a moment, we have literature out there, and some of you have asked about uh, this, and there's a little kind of a syllabus of notes, a series of lectures that I gave a few years ago in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. I titled it A Consideration of the Doctrines of Grace. It's in very rough, unedited form but it will have a lot of the information that I'm giving you today. There is another copy of a about 125-page uh, syllabus out there, The Atonement, and it'll have a lot of the other things I'll say today, and if you want The Atonement, I don't have any more of them. If you put your name on the list, and uh, I'll see that you get them. Uh, within six weeks last year, I didn't know that we needed to have those things, and I think there was a delay. So if you want any of that, just put your name on the list, and I'll see that you get them. 
Amoraldian is defined as a theological perspective or position relative to the order of the decrees of God which concern the salvation of God's people. Named after the French Protestant theologian Moïse Amoraux, or we would say Moses Amoraldus, who lived in 1596 to 1664, Amoraldism views the decree to provide the atonement by Christ, a decree which only makes salvation possible. In addition, there is a decree to regenerate the elect who believe, which presupposes that some may be elect, but not believe. Now, I have written on the other side of the board, and I'll flip it over for you in just a moment, the order of decrees as given by uh, Warfield in his book on theology. But just in case, never assuming that anybody knows anything, let me give you some, some definitions. Infralapsarianism is a theological perspective or position relative to the order of the decrees of God that concern the salvation of God's people. Infralapsarian is derived from the Latin infra, which means below or subsequent, and lapsus meaning fall. So often this is called the sublapsarian view in systematics, and this view places the decree of eternal life after the decree to permit the fall, but prior to the decree to provide atonement by Christ. The supralapsarian view, again from supra, uh, meaning above or before, and lapsus meaning fall. And supralapsarianism places the decree of election to eternal life prior to the decree to permit the fall, and both of these decrees prior to the decree by which the atonement is provided by our Lord Jesus Christ. What I propose to do today is probably to end where most of you would really like to get started. I'm going to give you first some historical perspective and overview. I felt this was the best thing to do in light of the time. Give you some basic tenets of this particular uh, view and hope that maybe you will do some further studying and consideration and work these things out. I think that, in my opinion, this is pertinent for today because uh, I think unknown to a lot of people, there are many people who claim to be or who are, in their own opinion, Calvinistic, who lean toward an Amaraldian view of the atonement. Perhaps they are not aware of it, but they nevertheless do. The whole picture started, I believe, in rumblings from Geneva. John Calvin developed the doctrine of predestination with constantly increasing clearness and distinctness. And then in 1542, Albert Pagaius made a vigorous assault upon this doctrine in a publication which was titled Concerning Arbitrary Liberty and Divine Grace. 
And in that work, he gave the common arguments that predestination, as he viewed Calvin understanding it, leaves no room for morality, human responsibility, or merit. Calvin replied to that work in another titled Concerning Arbitrary Liberty, and it is in that work that Calvin developed the ideas with which we are familiar, namely that God alone works salvation, that the sinner himself is to blame for his own condemnation, and that the doctrine of predestination is not equivalent to Stoic fatalism. And 1551, Jerome Bolchek, having moved to Geneva in that same year, endeavored to find the source of faith in grace alone, but with the exclusion of election. And he held that God works through efficacious grace, which seems to me to be a contradiction. That it is not always produced, that is, the fact that uh, faith and grace and so on is not always produced in everyone is to be attributed to rebellion in man and not to the decree of God. He also taught, of course, that man has not been entirely deprived of his free will, though his will remains wounded and corrupt. Further, Bozik taught that there is, can be no room whatsoever for a pre-temporal election, that is, an election before time. Now, his teachings resulted in an appeal from Geneva to other Swiss theologians. And much to their surprise, instead of a clear and incisive testimony in favor of double predestination, the response was at best lukewarm. And in spite of the moderate response given in 1551 and 1552, the emphasis upon predestination became more and more pronounced. And eventually, in the opinion of many scholars, the doctrine of the divine decrees became the starting point of reformed dogmatics. And the growing prominence of this doctrine was reflected in the decrees of the Senate of Dort. 1618 to 1619, which was devoted to its consideration. And the occasion, as you all know, for this holding of this synod was the Arminian controversy. Jacob Arminius was a student of Theodore Beza. Theodore Beza was the successor of John Calvin. And under the teachings of Beza, Arminius became a confirmed Calvinist. He even held the extreme soteriological position of supralapsarianism. And in 1588, having studied in Italy and elsewhere, he returned to Amsterdam, Amsterdam, where he was ordained into the ministry. And he became distinguished as a preacher and as a theologian. And according to Philip Schaff, he says, quote, while engaged in research against the writings of Deutsch Kuhnhardt, at the request of the magistrate of Amsterdam, Arminius found the argument of his opponent, who was a Pelagian, stronger than his own conviction, and he became a convert to the doctrine of universal grace and the freedom of the will. End of quote. He thereafter, of course, adopted, or modified, developed, I should say, he developed a, a 
modified view of original sin, though he continued to hold to the total depravity of man. And accordingly, Arminius advocated a revision of the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, the standard for the Reformed churches. In 1603, Arminius, who at this point was professor of the University of Leiden, was sent to the University of Geneva, Switzerland. And in Geneva, he was brought into conflict with his colleague, Francis Gomarus who held to the strict doctrine of predestination, that is, the supra-lapsarian view. And it was this fellow, Gomarus, who had conferred the degree of doctor of divinity upon Arminius. The controversy between these two soon spread throughout all of Holland. Arminius applied to the government to invoke a synod a church council for the purpose of examining and establishing the official positions of the church upon the doctrine. I believe that for Arminius the issue was twofold, whether or not there was a conditional or unconditional election, and two, whether or not grace was resistible or irresistible. Arminius died in 1609, and his position was taken up by two men James Utenbogart and Simon, I pronounce his name, Episcopius. I've heard it pronounced differently, but as I say, that's the neither, neither, nether controversy. <laughs> In 1610, the followers of Arminius, now known as Arminians and branded as heretics by their opponents, united in protest. We know it as the Remonstrance. And the remonstrance organized under five heads or uh, articles what they stood for, and they presented that to the civil authorities of Holland. And in addition to certain statements contained in the Belgic Confession, the Belgic Confession of Faith and Heidelberg Catechism, the remonstrance protested specifically regarding those doctrines relating to the divine sovereignty, to human inability, to unconditional election, to predestination, to particular redemption, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Perhaps some of you may have read the textbook of the history of doctrine. It was published back in 52. The author was uh, Reinhold Seberg, and he summarizes the remonstrance position thus. I think it's worthy of uh, mentioning. First, he says, number one, God determined before the foundation of the world to save through Christ those of the fallen human race who would believe on it. Number two, man does not by the power of his free will attain saving faith, but he is born and he is renewed to such faith by Christ through the Holy Spirit. Number three, as the beginning, so also the progress and completion of good in man is dependent upon grace. But grace does not work irresistibly. Number four, those who have received the spirit and faith are able through the assistance of grace to struggle against all temptations and come off victorious. Number five, the question whether regenerated 
man, woman, the regenerate, can fall from grace was left undecided. Roger Nicole succinctly summarizes these five articles as follows. First, God elects or reproves on the basis of foreseen faith or unbelief. Number two, Christ died for all men and every man, although only believers are saved. Number three, man is so depraved that divine grace is necessary under faith of any good deed. Number four, this grace may be resisted. And number five, whether all who are truly regenerate will certainly persevere in the faith is a point that needs further investigation. Of course, as we know, that last article was altered so as to definitely teach the possibility of the truly regenerate believer losing his or her faith and thus losing salvation. Now, the remonstrants were at once confronted by the contra-remonstrants. And the agitation increased, and it was decided to settle the dispute by a synod which, to which nearly all of the Reformed churches were invited, and even the Church of England was represented. And the synod was held at Dort, Holland, from November 13, 1618, to May 9, 1619. And that synod at Dort has no parallel, really, in the history of Protestantism. There were 80 four members and 18 secular commissioners, including 27 delegates from Germany alone. They held 154 sessions over a seven-month period. What were the results? The overwhelming majority of contra-remonstrants placed the remonstrants, the Arminians, in the position of defendants at the outset of that council. To say the least, the results were predictable. The canons of the Synod cast a strong light upon the significance of the doctrine of predestination for the later Reformed Church. And the leading thoughts were, and I summed them up for you first, the fact that some of the fallen race come to Christ in faith must be attributed to grace. The fact that only some of the race are saved must be attributed to the eternal counsel of God. Number two, God elected a definite number of men to Christ in salvation while in his justice leaving others to their just condemnation. Number three, the election is realized in the mission of Christ, the effectual call, the bestowal of faith, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Hence, man is assured of his election by its infallible fruits, faith, the fear of God, sorrow for sin, hunger and thirst after righteousness constitute the basis of our recognition of predestination. Number four, the sacrifice of Christ, which in itself is of infinite value and abundantly sufficient for the salvation of all men, affects only the salvation of the elect. Number five, God accompanies the calling of the elect through the word, with illumination, through the Holy Spirit, and the agency of regenerating grace. Here's a quote. He infuses new qualities into the will and makes it from dead living, from evil good, from unwilling willing. This regeneration is a creative act of God like the recalling of the dead to life. It is not accomplished by means of moral persuasion. It does not impart to man the mere possibility of conversion but it is a wonderful work of divine agency. 
in order that all those in whose hearts God operates in this wonderful way may certainly, infallibly, and efficaciously be regenerated and actually believe. End of quote. And sixth, and lastly, the certainty of the salvation of the elect, they said, is secured finally by the perseverance of the saints. The changeableness of the divine decree excludes the possibility that they should entirely fall away or be lost. In other words, they were relying upon the immutability of God. If God changes, then our salvation can change. But if our salvation is based upon God and his sovereign will, and he has will for us to be redeemed at the last, then we shall be. Now, it is suggested by some, and I think it is important, and I think it has some merit, that the effect of the canons of Dort was to exalt predestination to the position of a dogma, which prior to that time had not been that. That the decrees of Dort indicate a displacement of the original order of thought in the sphere of soteriology. What does that mean? That means that according to this theory, predestination was previously looked upon as a support of our assurance, for the assurance of salvation. But after the Synod of Dort, it was made the fundamental conception of our salvation. Prior to Dort, the course of salvation was traced from justification, from predestination, or from justification to predestination. We would reason from our call and say if we are called, therefore we've been predestinated. But after that, the shift was reasoning from predestination, starting in eternity past, to justification. Well, as such, whether that be true or not, as such, the Arminians saw the decrees of Dort as a departure from the understanding of John Calvin himself, as he had written in the Institutes. And the precise nature of this departure is an exchange, in their view, of ecclesiastical Calvinism for a Calvinism which is decidedly humanistic. So according to this author that I've mentioned earlier, Seberg, he says, quote, that the Arminians by no means signified merely dissent from a single doctrine, but it was rather a protest against the enlargement of the sphere of dogma and against the limitation of exegetical freedom by dogmatic formulas. This is proved by the further history of Arminianism. Now what that means to boil that down is really they were not in favor, they were certainly far more in favor of scholasticism than perhaps the general public is today, but they were not in favor of uh, enlarging the dogmatic uh, formula, catechisms, confessions, and so on. In other words, the Armenians were infected with latitudinarian, a latitudinarian spirit. Latitudinarianism was the idea that anybody and everybody who had in any way showed any interest in Christ uh, should be accepted as a Christian. Now, it may be a simplicity of that. It may be an exaggeration, but I think a modern expression of that idea would be something like, we don't want any doctrine, uh, just give us Jesus. That would be the idea, I think, that uh, would be in, in that idea, that thought. 
Now it seemed to some that the way out then, since they said the Senate of Dort has actually departed from Calvin himself, it seemed that the way out consisted in some sort of modification of the doctrine of predestination. After all, if the problem lay in going beyond Calvin, if, if Calvin's children had, had misunderstood their spiritual progenitor regarding this doctrine, then the cry has to be back to Calvin. I remember years ago there was a young man in our congregation and he was very bright and he, he had been a Lutheran and he had gone to Lutheran seminary. And he heard, uh, he heard me on TV. We've had a television program in uh, Nashville for, since 82. A lot of people hear a lot of uh, things and they come out to the church, they seek the church out and he was one of those. And uh, we had several times together talking but once he was trying to tell me that the particular school he went to, though it was Lutheran, was very serious about the scripture, about the word of God. And he said, our cry there was back to Luther, back to Luther. And of course, I can't give you all of the context of our conversation, but this is what I said to him. I said, that's fine, Randy, but I said, the problem is that's just not far enough back. <laughs> I said, you have to go all the way back to the eternal decrees of God. You have to go back to Christ, and then you have to go back to the eternal decrees of God. The idea that they had departed from Calvin, and we needed to get back to Calvin, that probably, it is generally agreed, was the aim of Moise Amaro, or Moses Amaraldus. Amaraldism was the name given to the theology of Moses Amaraldus, and more particularly to his specific way of defining the doctrine of predestination. And in this latter sense, it was generally called hypothetical universalism. It was one of three attempts to break out of the iron ring of predestination within which the reformed scholastic of that century had enclosed the theology of the reformed church. What were the other two? Well, there was Arminianism and there was covenant theology. Moses Amaraldus was born in Bouchayet in France, Turin, in 1596, and his family belonged to the reformed family of Christianity. Uh, he was determined to be a lawyer. But somewhere along the way, he read a copy of Calvin's Institutes, and it so captured his attention that he threw everything else away, and he turned all of his attention and his energy to theology. He entered <clears throat> the Theological College of Samur, and there he came under the spell of a celebrated theologian, John Cameron. And Cameron made a profound impression upon uh, Amaraldus. In fact, all of the sources that I looked at said that the only person who possibly influenced him more was, was Calvin in his institutes. Well, by the age of 30, Amaraldus had acquired a high position in the Reformed Church of France. In 1633, he was appointed professor of theology at uh, Samur. And you only had to come and hear his lectures to understand that he believed that the so-called Calvinism of his day differed from the teaching of the master himself, of Calvin himself. And it was the aim of Amaraldus, as I have said, to bring back the Calvinism of the Institutes. 
which differed, he believed, widely from the way Calvin was viewed by the scholastic schoolmen, especially in this area of predestination. With Calvin, he said, predestination is not the beginning of the theological system. It is never used as the fundamental thought under which everything else is to be classed. It is simply an explanation of the sovereignty of grace, which overrides man's sin and weakness. For Amoraldus, the master thought in John Calvin in his institutes was the purpose of God moving down through the ages, making for redemption and the establishment of the kingdom of God. Now, if you'd like to read something good about that and how that there is some truth in that position, you might consult B.B. Uh, Warfield's book because he points out there that we have to realize that Calvin and others were not writing from the precise viewpoint or burden of defending the particular doctrine of predestination. They were writing from an overall viewpoint of the theology of the Word of God. Well, to be sure, Amaraldus maintained firmly the Reformed doctrine of predestination, that God had elected some to salvation, but he has purpose to leave others to perdition. But he modified his position at two points in such a way that they were out of harmony with the prevalent view. First, he taught that the irresistible working of God upon the will of man is effected through the illumination of the intellect. That is, he said that conversion is a special case of the ordinary action of the intelligence on the will. Now, according to the psychology of his day, it was held that the will acts only insofar as it is influenced by the intellect. That is, action follows enlightenment. Conversion, then, is a special case of this action of intellect upon the will. It's special because, in this case, the spirit enlightens the intellect, and the intellect, charged with this spiritual enlightenment, acts upon the will. So conversion is thus an instance, quote, an instance of the ordinary action of the intelligence on the will, and yet is at the same time an altogether extraordinary work of supernatural grace. The grace of God, which is supernatural, when it acts upon the will in conversion, follows the ordinary psychological laws. The second distinction that... Uh, Moses Amaraldus make with this. He held that there is in nature and history, independent of the gospel, a certain dim revelation of the grace of God. Now both of these revelations have been made possible only because justification has been rendered to the divine justice by the sacrifice of Christ. But neither this general revelation nor the preaching of the gospel in itself can bring the sinner to salvation, can bring salvation to the sinner. This depends upon divine election. However, since a certain announcement of the grace of God has in some way reached all men, the destruction of multitudes is more easily accounted for, in his view, since all have been guilty of rejecting either the general or the special offer of grace. I'll say some more about this later. It is important to remember 
that Amaraldus, whose devotion to Calvin was unbounded, insisted that these thoughts of his were the legitimate and historical development of the ideas printed in the Institutes. He did not see himself as departing, but as going back to what really Calvin had said. Well, where he taught, uh, in the college there soon developed a great reputation and students from the Reformed churches from all over began to, especially from Switzerland, began to come there and to study under him. But pretty soon the individual churches began to withdraw their students because of his views. He was eventually called to appear before two synods, a French National Synod at Alacor, or Alaca, uh, Lincoln in 1637 and a Nick, another one in 1645. Uh, he was cleared uh, of, uh, of teaching heretical doctrine. Uh, but he was advised to, quote, avoid using such unusual and startling forms of expression, end of quote. Later, however, in 1675, 11 years after his death, the Swiss theologians felt themselves under the obligation to construct a new symbol in the interest of orthodoxy. And after many conferences and much conflict, the formula Consensus Helvetica was framed for the purpose of denouncing the doctrine of Amaraldus and two of his colleagues who with him had sat under this John Cameron. And this, this particular uh, consensus Helvetica said, quote, or the Encyclopedia of Religion, Volume 2, History of Doctrine says, quote, about this decision, this document rejects the view of Amaraldus teaching the strictest the strictest particularism in the election and maintains with emphasis that Christ died only for the elect and reconciled them alone to God. Only the elect come through the external call, which is serious and sincere to faith, but that by the will of God, in the call thus universally announced, only the elect are led to faith, but the reprobate are hardened. And this proceeds from the discriminating grace of God. Now, so much for the historical review. Let me spend the last few minutes trying to wind us down. I want us to uh, consider just a moment here. If you can read any of this up here, I'm going to turn this around for you. These views, these three views of super infra lapsarianism and Amaraldianism. <clears throat> Now, each of us who takes the Bible seriously, we have all wrestled with, the, with striking some sort of harmony between the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God, between the love of God for the cosmos and the love of God in Christ for particular people. And in this struggle, we stand in danger of falling prey, as, as Amaraldus did, I believe, to the idea of reconciling the Bible with our preconceived notions. In other words, rather than going to the Bible, as Dr. Johnson has said, let the text stand where it is. Rather than going to the Bible to see what it actually says, we go to the Bible to see what it says that we've already made up our minds that we believe. 
And it is almost impossible. In fact, I think it is impossible to approach the Bible completely objectively. Uh, years ago, when I was teaching in a Christian school, I had a parent call me. I was teaching a church history class, and I had a parent call me about some questions that I had answered by some of their, their kids, and the, these particular people went to a Pentecostal church. And they asked me about some things that I said, and, and uh, after we talked a while, I said, let me ask you this. I said, do you expect me to teach anything other than what I see in the Scripture? I said, if you were in my place and someone asked you a question, would you teach what you saw in the Scripture? He said, I guess I would. I said, well, that's all that I've done. I said, we can differ here. We can agree to disagree. But I cannot teach other than what I see in the Word of God. What has to happen in conversion is the glasses, as Van Til said, the glasses with which we are born has to be taken off, and we have to have a new pair of spectacles given to us by God that we're able to see from his perspective things as they are rather than as they appear to be. Anyone can read the Bible and understand what it says. The point is, the question is, what does it mean? You understand? As our brother has opened up some things for us this morning, telling us what it means, we can read it and see what the words say, but what does it mean? Well, in this struggle to reconcile these ideas that we have, these concepts, we sometimes fall into or lean toward error. Rather than approach the Bible with a mind submissive to the revelation contained therein, we've already made up our minds what we believe. And in his quest to hold the sovereign grace, in particular redemption, while at the same time justify God in the damnation of the heathen, much less the multitudes of the so-called civilized nation, Moses Amaraldus fell into error. And the thrust of Amaraldism rests upon three distinctives. One, he wanted to break through the strict idea of salvation limited to the elect alone by making the goodness of God which has reference to all men universally, still active in his righteousness. He declared that this thought lay implicitly in the well-known phrase of the divines of Dort, which Dr. Johnson mentioned, that Christ's death is sufficient for all, but efficient for only the elect. To make plain what Amaraldus thought that statement really meant, he changed it to Christ's death is sufficient but not actual for all. And this gave him a hypothetical universalism and in his mind a real limitation to those who are actually saved. Number two, he wanted to break down the barrier which the 17th century divines had reared against the possibility of the salvation of the heathen. Namely, that those to whom the external call is addressed, or those to whom the external call is not addressed, cannot be held to be recipients of the benefits of the saving work of Christ. Rather, he taught 
that God in providence did bestow upon pious heathen what in their case did amount to an external call. And in his mind, this gave a real and not a hypothetical universal and external call. And with it, the offer of salvation to those who had not heard the gospel. Thirdly, and lastly, he widened, he wanted to widen, he did widen, the precisely fixed sphere of conversion by insisting that every illumination of the intellect was an analog and a prophecy of the spiritual enlightenment which precedes conversion. In other words, all enlightenment whatsoever from any source is definitely enough for one to be uh, brought to faith and to repentance. The controversy that followed the publication of his views, however, was really confined to that first line of thought, the attempt to break through the strict idea that salvation is limited to the elect. What we have to ask here is what changes the hypothetical universal reference into a real particular reference. Now, if the change arises from man's power to resist what God has purposed to do, then Amaraldus was, after all, an Arminian, as the Dutch and the Swiss theologians asserted that he was. You see, he, was, he went to trial, so to speak, twice, and they said he's not teaching heresy. He's just using strange language. He is a Calvinist. But if he believes that this change occurs as a result of the will of man, he is, after all, an Arminian. If he believes, however, that the mystery of this change lies in God, his theology did not differ substantially from that of the divines of Dort, except maybe in sentiment. Now this latter view, which was taken by the French Reformed Church, this is why Amaraldus was not condemned as a heretic. The phrase that Christ died for the whole world may be taken in three senses. Our brother again has touched upon this. He died for Jews as well as Gentiles, for a people out of all nations and, and, and uh, generations, number one. Number two, he died to secure many advantages for all men from Adam to the last generation especially for all the citizens in Christian lands. Thirdly, he died to secure the salvation of each and every person that ever lived. That is, he died in the same sense for the non-elect as for the elect. Now, Arians and Pelagians and Semi-Pelagians and Socinians and Arminians have in perfect consistency with their systems maintained the general and indefinite reference to the atonement. But Augustinians and Calvinists have held that Christ died definitely and personally for the elect. Some people have claimed that neither Augustine nor Calvin advocated a definite atonement. I happen to have a friend who's been ministering in London, England at Westminster Chapel where Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was. And since he has openly stated his view, I'm certain he would not mind my telling you. But 
uh, he has somewhat taken this view. In fact, he has. He has tried to show that John Calvin himself did not believe in a limited atonement or in a particular redemption. This is what A.A. A. Hodge points out. He says, quote, all really consistent Calvinists ought to have learned by this time that the original positions of the great writers and confessions of the Reformed churches have only been confused and neither improved, strengthened, nor illustrated by all the talk with which the church has, in the meantime, been distracted as to the double will of God or the double reference of the atonement. This is what Amaral does admit. If men will be consistent in their adherence to these novelties, Hodge calls them, they must become Arminians. If they're going to hold consistently to the essential principles of Calvinism, then they must discard these novelties. End of quote. Now, when those of the schoolmen, the scholars of that day, followed Augustine, they affirmed that Christ, if they said they meant, if they said Christ died for all men, they certainly meant in a very different sense that statement. That intent, their intent was far different than the sense in which he died for the elect. And the formula that I mentioned earlier, Christ's death is sufficient for all and efficient for the elect, that may not be completely adequate for us, but it's better than affirming that Christ died indifferently for every person. Amaraldism was one of two attempts during the 17th and 18th centuries to engraft the notion of a general redemption on the Calvinistic system. Both of these attempts were made by those who professed orthodox views regarding the nature of the atonement. The other one concerned the moral controversy. Amaraldism's view was deemed a hypothetical universalism, conditional Universalism. He taught that there were two wills or purposes in God with respect to salvation. The one will is a purpose to provide at the cost of the sacrifice of God's own Son salvation for each and every human being without exception if they believe, which I might say is a condition foreknown to be universally and certainly impossible, the other will is an absolute purpose depending only upon God's own sovereign good pleasure to secure the certain salvation of a definite number and to grant them all gifts and graces necessary to that end. Now what's happened here is a supposed synthesis of bringing together of a real particularism with a universal and ideal universalism. And really, it's just, in my opinion, it is... Uh, a matter almost of semantics. It is a matter of bad language. Now I want you to consider the differences between these systems if you can read that. <laughs> between the, the differences, the Arminian, uh, Calvinism, Amaraldianism, and so on, and then we're going to look, we're going to look at the supralapsarian, infralapsarian, Amaraldian view, and I'm almost through. The orthodox view, generally, God purpose to create, he permitted the fall, he elected some to eternal life with the means thereof, and he determined to give the son for the elect. Now that system is consistent through and through. There are no inconsistent purposes, there's no inefficacious will, there's no 
uh, sort of love, making infinite sacrifices for its objects, and yet suspending their participation in the benefits because of impossible conditions which they could never meet. And there are no conditional decrees. There's one single, consistent, sovereign purpose logically pursued from beginning to end. Amoraldism is a purpose to create. That's number one. The fall into sin is permitted. Uh, the son is given to die out of a general love for mankind. Uh, salvation is secured on the condition of faith, which is foreseen not to exist. And God, realizing that no one would be saved and the redemption of Christ would utterly fail, is moved by a special personal love for the elect and sovereignly determines to give them special grace to lead them to faith. You can see that the difference between supra and infralapsarianism is only in one point. Supralapsarianism, God created, elected, permitted the fall, provided the atonement, gift of the Holy Spirit to convict, convert, convince, regeneration and sanctification of the elect. In infolapsarianism, you can see I've put number three in the second place. There's only a swap between two and three. And the rest of them are the same. Over here in the Amaraldian position, God determined to create. Then he brought or permitted the fall. And then the atonement made only salvation possible. And then some were elected to moral ability, and then the gift of the Holy Spirit, the regeneration of the elect who believe, and sanctification of the regenerate. Time will not permit me to show you how in the very specific, precise areas this differs from the general Arminian view that God simply looked down through eternity and saw what we would do and elected us on the basis of our foreseen actions. According to this view, the Amaraldian view, there are two distinct purposes. The general purpose, which concerns the human race as a whole without making any discrimination of individual persons, and the special purpose, which selects out of the mass of mankind certain persons and appoints them to salvation. The general purpose has reference to objective grace, which God gives to all alike, and the special purpose has respect to subjective grace, which he gives alone to the elect. The general purpose removes all external impediments to salvation out of the way of all, which results from their inability to satisfy divine justice, and the special purpose removes the internal impediments out of the way of the elect. So what does this view say to us in conclusion? Consider this. Amaraldianism represents God as loving the non-elect sufficiently to give them his son to die for them, but not enough to give them faith and repentance. Number two, God proposes that all men should be saved on the condition of faith, which is a condition known to be impossible. That is, man by nature is in unbelief and cannot give himself faith. And at the same time, God purposes that a large portion of the human race should be redeemed at such a cost that they should remain ignorant of the gospel and the conditions of it. Number three, 
God is represented here as giving the perfect sacrifice of Christ, but it saves no one. The sacrifice of Christ is dependent on a subsequent decree of election for even a partial success. Next, God is willing, both willing, that all men should be saved and only the elect should be saved. And lastly, this view denies that any of God's decrees are conditioned upon the self-determined will of the creature, and at the same time, it uses the language of Arminianism. It speaks of universal grace, conditional will, and so on. And I think therein lies the greatest danger of Amaraldianism, and that is that while professing to be a Calvinistic scheme, it really uses the reasoning and the language historically uh, charged to Arminianism. I know that this has been somewhat confusing to you, but I had to stick to my notes to finish in the time allotted to me. I hope you'll think about what I've said, and perhaps as we finish out this week, we'll have some discussion about all of these things. I think it's worthy to be studied further. When I went down to uh, Vanderbilt University to the Divinity Library there to do some studying, uh, for me it was significant that I, I could barely find, hardly find anything there. And what I found was uh, you have to go in the, the herd library and then you have to go down to the bottom floor and you go all the way over to the back in the corner and over in the corner, I found a few works that were worthy, in my opinion, to be read and to be studied. So we are living in a time when people are not aware of these things. I realize that we can't teach this kind of stuff on Sunday morning, but I think we ought to know what these doctrines say and the implications of them so that we're able to correctly instruct our people and warn them against those things. It certainly goes without saying that many people today teach many things that they've never really thought out. They have no idea what they imply. And somehow, brethren, we have to bring ourselves, as Dr. Johnson has said, to the Scripture. And we have to say, this is what it says, whether I understand it or not. The idea that has been so popular today, if God said it, I believe it, and that settles it, is altogether incorrect. If God has said it, it's settled. It does not need, God does not need man's approval, and reality is not determined by whether or not we see the tree fall in the forest and hear the noise thereof. If there is a God, and he made this universe, and he sees and hears all things, he determines the reality of things. And he it is who tells us what Christ did and why he did it. I would say finally about this phrase that's used so much in, in the realm of theology when you're studying these kinds of things that Christ's death is sufficient for all but efficient for the elect. I would say this. I would say that if the Lord Jesus, as I read in John 17, 9, did not pray for the world, it seems to me that it is ridiculous to affirm that he died for every person in the world without distinction. Why would he not pray for the world if he didn't give himself to die for the world? 
We are driven back to Deuteronomy 29.29, in my opinion. There's only so far that we can go in studying and looking into the predestination of God as set forth in the Scripture. And I think we endanger ourselves and others if we seek through curiosity to go beyond that. The point is, God is sovereign. He has determined certain things. He will have his way. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. And he works all things for the good of those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. Whatever God wants to do will be fine with me. That is the bottom line, in my opinion. Thank you for your time.